Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome back for another edition of Let's Hear It. You've made it to another episode. You've continued along with us, and it's well worth the uh, it's well worth the wait, well worth the uh, listen. This Eric Brown once again. Here we are again. Here Another we are. amazing conversation. Just you and me. You and you and me and, and uh, genius and brilliance. We're and about to hear genius and brilliance. We are going to hear a really interesting, fun, cool interview with Saru Jayaraman, who is the president of One Fair Wage, which is an organization that is working. What you? I see you. You're. you're straining at the bit to talk no no no. go ahead go ahead really I, i'm just i you mentioned it there's a very long cv ahead <laughs> so i'm trying to get the entire list of things yes that cyrus accomplished in front of me in case you forget something i want to make sure oh, i see it thank you yeah thank you for covering me yeah try so one fair wages is, is an organization that is working to ensure that there is one minimum wage for all workers in America. And as you're going to hear, that's not currently the case. Yeah. Saru is also the founder of the Restaurant Opportunities Center United. Mm. She is the director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley, where she teaches. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's got some energy. She's written some books. She's the author of Forked, um, and she's a mother of two, by the way. Um, Saru, what a conversation. There's so much to get into with this. Um you can also find her, by the way, at Rock United. I think that's an interesting, you know, reference. And she's on Twitter um, at Saru J Raman. That's S A R U J A Y A R A M A N. Let's listen to this, Eric, and come back. This is really a special one. Here we go. Strap on. <laughs> Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Saru J Raman. You are. Oh boy. Here we go. <laughs> you are the president of One Fair Wage. And actually, if I went down your the list, we'd be here all day. That was a thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Sure. You're the co-founder of Restaurant Opportunities Center United, which you co-founded in 2007, I believe. You were 2002. The, two, oh, okay. Yeah. You're the director of the Food Labor Research Center at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. Go Bears? <laughs> Yes. And you're an adjunct professor of public policy there. You are the author of four books. Yes. I do believe. Two of them are out. So behind three the are ki- out. Three are out. Yes. Behind the kitchen door, forked. Yes. A new standard for American dining. And bite back. Is on its way, yes. Is on its way. Way to go with the nifty titles. (laughs) Um, Wait, there's one more. I had an old book many years ago called The New Urban Immigrant Workforce, and I have another book coming out in 2021 on our One Fair Wage campaign. Got it. I like this up. (laughs) Your CV runs 12 pages. (laughs) 
That's ridiculous. It's 12 pages. <laughs> I didn't so, even know that. So thanks thanks for making the rest of us feel like phenomenal <laughs> underachievers. I feel so ashamed. And so you're an attorney and obviously an, an activist. Yeah. And we had this little pre-conversation before we started here. It's like, well, how'd you find me? <laughs> I found you when you were speaking to an, a small group of people at the Irvine foundation several years ago and i was just taken with your ability to tell stories and i've gone back and done a little research basically every time you stand up to a microphone you start with a story oh. <laughs> we'll get into kind of the the thing of storytelling but how did you get to this point this is an extraordinary career that has happened in let's just call it a compressed period of time <laughs> how did you get to this point well, it's funny, you say you always start with a story, and it's true, I didn't think about that, And but typically the story I start with is my own story, which is that I am the child of immigrants from India, and I grew up kind of east of East LA, so I grew up in a working class Chicano Latino neighborhood, and ended up going back east for law school and graduate school, and just coming out of law school and graduate school when 9-11 happened. I was working at the time after law school and graduate school at an immigrant worker organizing center out in Long Island, New York, when 9-11 happened, and there was a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, uh, Tower One, and on that morning, about 73 workers died, and about 13,000 restaurant workers lost their jobs in the months and weeks following the tragedy because nobody was eating out at the time. And so I was asked as a very young attorney and organizer, honestly, it was because they couldn't find anybody else at the time. <laughs> it was really kind of a um, destiny in some ways, a miracle. And I was asked to start this relief center for all these workers who lost their jobs and the families of the victims. And we were overwhelmed with cries for help from workers from the World Trade Center, then from all over New York City, and then from all over the country. And it didn't take long for us to try to take a pause to say, what is going on here? Why are we being so overwhelmed? And the rest is history. We built the organization based on years of research. But you ask about storytelling, and I will say being flooded with cries for help from restaurant workers and then documenting those cries for help in research, because I was always an academic alongside being an organizer, so doing what we call participatory research, training workers to survey their fellow workers out in the field, and then collecting those stories, collecting that data to tell the world what was happening in the restaurant industry. That laid the foundation for our work for the next 20 years. It justified why we had to do it, but most importantly, it elevated the voices and stories of workers as the forefront of why, why we were doing what we were doing. So there was my story, but then right from the very beginning, it was all about worker stories, elevating their stories in order to show that change was needed. You talk about this a lot. There's almost this shadow economy and a shadow workforce in this country. What is it? One out of 10 yeah. or so workers works in the restaurant yes. industry. We're, we're actually nearing 14 million workers. It's the nation's number two largest private sector employer and number one fastest growing private sector employer in the United States because we just keep eating out in ever increasing number. And, and there is this almost perverse carve out in employment law that says that the federal minimum wage for these workers is what? $2.13 an hour. And how the hell did that happen? 
So um, tipping as a practice originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. If you ever watch Downton Abbey or you read old English literature, you will see references to tipping as an extra or a bonus on top of a salary. When the idea came to the States, it happened to come right around the time of emancipation and after emancipation, the restaurant lobby demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves, actually mostly black women at the time, pay them nothing and have them live entirely on this new idea that had just come from Europe called a tip. Now, that was a mutation of the original notion of tipping. Tipping was always an extra or bonus on top of a wage. But in the United States, because of slavery, we made it a replacement for a wage because these employers did not feel that they should have to pay these workers anything at all. After, after all, they hadn't been paid anything for generations. So that idea that tips could replace wages became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal when everybody got the minimum wage for the first time, except for groups of black workers, farm workers, domestic workers, and tipped workers who are told you get a zero dollar wage as long as tips bring you to the full minimum wage. And we went from zero in 1938 1938, all the way up to $2.13 an hour over 81 years. And it's largely because you're talking about a 70% female population. We know that if it were different, if it had been a mostly male population, you probably wouldn't be at $2. But being a mostly female population of waitresses working in very casual restaurants and diners across America, that's where most of them work. They don't work in fancy fine dining restaurants. You end up with the lowest wage workers in America, 40% of whom are single moms, and who face the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States because they have to put up with whatever the customers do to them in order to feed their families and tips. So every time you see the tip line at a restaurant, you basically you can look at that and say that is a vestige of slavery. Not tipping itself, but the fact that employers can, in most states, cut away from the worker's wage because you're paying that tip, that is a vestige of slavery. So yes, every time you pay the tip and you are in a state, which is 43 states, that allows the employer to reduce the worker's wage because you are tipping, that is a vestige of slavery. And, you know, California and six other states got rid of this vestige of slavery many decades ago. Here in California, we have one fair wage, a full minimum wage with tips on top. We have actually higher restaurant sales per capita. We have a faster growing restaurant industry. All the chains that are fighting this elsewhere, they're the same ones that are growing faster here in California than the rest of the country. Higher rates of tipping and one half the rate of sexual harassment in California. And that's because when you have a mostly female workforce, she and they're, they're paid a full minimum wage, they don't feel like they have to put up with as much from the customer because they get a full wage from their boss, like every other worker in every other industry. So not making a woman so dependent on tips. She gets tips, but it's not her full income. Right. Allows her to say no to the harassment. And so our argument is if California can do it so successfully, then certainly every state can do it. This is one of the many issues in this country that are exacerbated by inequity. How are you engaging with this larger movement of people who are trying to, to make the case with that we need a more equitable society? How do these pieces all fit together? So obviously there are many different forms of inequity in our country. There's economic inequality. We have reached the highest levels of economic inequality in our history's nation, higher than the Gilded Age. We are we are worse than the Gilded Age. I mean, the, the fat cats, the 1%, I mean, the way they have robbed from us 
is worse than it was at, in other parts of our history. Then there's racial inequality, which stems from slavery at its root, at like on this issue. And then there's gender inequality that persists in the fact that everything from the fact that we've never had a female president, which is insane, to the fact that the majority female industries like this one are allowed to pay $2 an hour. All of those inequities are intricately interconnected, you know? Economic inequality is increased because of race and gender inequity. And, and I think one key point that people, white people and men need to understand, all of us need to understand, is that when the elites are able to use race and gender to suppress people's wages, it ends up hurting everybody. How is that true? Well, this ridiculous wage of $2 started because of slavery, which was uh, an imposition on black people alone in this country. But then it persisted because they were women, women of all races. But now $2 applies to everybody, black, white, brown, and men and women, and transgender, everybody. Everybody's impacted by a $2 wage. And customers. Customers are seeing their tips subsidize multi-billion dollar corporations, again, because of inequities rooted in race and gender that exacerbate economic inequality. So in order for us to address economic inequality, we have to recognize legacies of slavery, you have to recognize gender inequities, and we have to be willing to go up against the corporate powers that are ultimately responsible for the severe economic inequality in our country. In our case... The part of the story I didn't get to tell you is that... we got plenty of time. <laughs> Take your time. I said at emancipation, the restaurant lobby demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves. That lobby, that early restaurant lobby, grew in power and force and became the National Restaurant Association, which we now call the other NRA. The other NRA. <laughs> it represents the chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's, the Olive Gardens. They, they've been named every year one of the top 10 most powerful lobbying groups in Congress. Everybody knows the Rifle Association, but people haven't heard of the Restaurant Association, which not only lobbies vitriolically to keep the wage at $2, it's also lobbied against pregnancy discrimination. It's also lobbied against paid sick leave. It's lobbied severely against health care reform. It's lobbied against CAFO, I mean, any kind of regulation on factory farms. It's an evil lobby <laughs> that people don't even know about. Part of, I think, the work of philanthropy and the left, the work it needs to do, is to stop pretending as if these inequities happened organically or that they happened without a protagonist. There are protagonists. They're called corporations. <laughs> corporations in this country have driven the inequality of every form, economic, racial, and gender. And we know that. Many of us know that. We've all read the literature. We we are very smart people. <laughs> we know corporations drive inequity. We know corporations control our democracy. It's so visible and obvious now under this presidential administration. And yet, philanthropy is very loath to actually fund any kind of pushback on corporate power, on corporate control of our democracy, which is interesting because there's a obviously tremendous amount of philanthropy on the right. Think tanks. I mean, you name it. Huge amount of philanthropy on the right. That philanthropy is unabashedly pro-corporation, unabashedly in favor of corporations controlling our democracy. But most philanthropy on the left or even the center is very loath to name or address corporate power, corporate control of our democracy. 
as a bad thing or even name it as the driver as opposed to just this horrible growth and inequity that somehow occurred the way it's often written is in very passive voice. I want to say to all your communicators and your network, please stop with the passive voice. The passive voice is a voice that shall not be used. No. <laughs> That's right. No more passive voice, especially when talking about inequity. Inequity doesn't just happen. People don't just suddenly wake up and try to treat people differently or people don't wake up poor versus rich. It happens over many decades of an agenda driven by corporations that have seized control of our democracy and our economy. And we all know it. Fundamentally, I believe most of your listeners know this to be true, but there's a real kind of timidity to call that out. And I understand people have boards and corporations are involved sometimes with philanthropy. I understand that. But I also do think most reasonable people on the left or even the center left can understand that if we truly want to address inequity, we can't do it without addressing the drivers of inequity, addressing the protagonists. Your reference to the passive voice reminds me of when Anthony Williams, who was the mayor of D.C., got up there one time and he got into trouble and he said, mistakes were made by this mayor. <laughs> <laughs> Which, whenever I get in trouble at home, I tell my wife, mistakes were made by this husband. I love that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> it's, you can have it. Of people, or mistakes were made by this boss. Exactly. As Ben McBride told us on this podcast, what is it? The first time you cite it, the second time you say it has been said, and the third time it's yours. That's great. I like that. So, well, on, on that happy note, we're going to be back in just a moment with Saru Jayaraman to continue this really fun conversation. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And we are back with Saru Jayaraman. You're the president of One Fair Wage. So now you've started a new thing. Yes. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Because you were unsatisfied with the 117 <laughs> other things that you did. But, <laughs> and um, and your husband runs the Ella Baker Center, That's right? That's right, yes. I, your kids are going to either <laughs> be crushed under the weight of all of this overachievement or maybe look out. Oh, the older one's an organizer already. Right. She started a children's committee. and <laughs> Well, the, the uh, what is it? Energetic apple doesn't fall That's far right. from the tree. Yes. How do you stay organized? Oh, my gosh. Nobody's ever asked me that question. <laughs> I don't know that I'm that organized, but I... Write everything down all the time, religiously. Uh, I mean, my pet peeve is saying I'm going to do something and not doing it. So I write everything down religiously and then organize it at the end of the day so I know what I'm doing next. Does that answer your question? I guess so. <laughs> I mean, you just have a million things that you do and you teach and you write books and yeah. things like that. I, you know, I could barely, I don't know, get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> Getting back to communications and the passive voice. Can I can yeah. I talk about the one fair wage and why? Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Yeah, this is yeah. your show. You okay. can do whatever you want. <laughs> so you know, we we launched the one fair wage campaign in 2013, 
seeing that there was this legacy of slavery that resulted in this absurdly low minimum wage of $2. And after surveying 10,000 restaurant workers across America and hearing that their number one concern was their wages, which is understandable when you are the lowest wage workforce in America. So we launched the campaign. We started moving bills to eliminate the minimum wage for tipped workers in like 16 states. Uh, we actually won one fair wage policy in Michigan, Maine, and D.C., but in each instance, the Restaurant Association rolled back, well, they, they bribed Democratic legislators to roll back the wins. And then we and, won- And bribed in the form of campaign contributions, Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, That's what I mean by corporate control of our democracy. Right. And then- Nothing prosecutable. 90%. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Okay, let the record show. <laughs> exactly. We did win one fair wage in the U.S. House of Representatives last year, July 2019. It was the first time in U.S. history that either House of Congress moved to eliminate the sum minimum wage for tipped workers since emancipation. It was the first time that House did this. Of course, it's not going to move under Mitch McConnell in the Senate or you with think? President Trump. <laughs> really? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So it's got to move in the states first in order to come back to the federal. But in the context of those wins, as we started to see who else was impacted by these issues, as we started to grow, last year we realized that the issue of the subminimum wage and the notion of tips as wage replacement had spread very rapidly and dangerously across the economy. So we already knew that tipped subminimum wage workers were restaurant, nail salon, car wash, the, the, your wheelchair attendants in most states get a $2 wage in, in, the, in the airports, parking attendants, hair salon workers in most states. Wow. So we already knew that, but we were starting to see the spread of tipping because of app-based workers, Instacart, DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, and unfortunately, Apple Pay. Apple Pay spread tipping to retail environments so that now coffee shops and fast food, even I went to a florist shop recently and they turned the screen around and it's the owner turning the screen around saying, how much do you want to tip? You know, so suddenly you're being asked to tip in all these environments that you were never asked to tip before because of Apple Pay. And that combined with President Trump passing new regulation that says you can be paid a sub-minimum wage as long as you get just $30 a month in tips means that you're seeing the subminimum wage for tipped workers spread to retail environments, fast food, even an airline attempted to drive their workers down to a subminimum wage. And even worse, as DoorDash and Instacart and these companies grow, they are attempting to copy the arguments of the restaurant industry and basically say that they should be able to cut their delivery workers' payments based on how much you tip them. And so it's the same idea, and it's spreading perilously across the economy. And so we realized we had to spin One Fair Wage out of rock into a broader entity campaign effort that brought together all the tipped and subminimum wage workers. And as we did that, we realized, whoa, there's even other people beyond tipped workers who are getting a subminimum wage. People with disabilities, even in California, get a subminimum wage. Uh, youth get a subminimum wage in many states. And incarcerated workers is another legacy of slavery. Ten cents an hour or something like that, right? I mean, here we're sitting in California. There have been just crazy wildfires. And there are thousands of incarcerated people being asked to fight wildfires for 13 cents an hour alongside unionized firefighters, risking their lives for pennies because of an exception to the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery, except in the case of incarceration. And so here are now two legacies of slavery, the subminimum wage for tipped workers and the exception to, incarcer uh, to slavery and incarceration that have resulted in, at this point, 
10 to, we estimate 10 to 15 million workers in America receiving less than a minimum wage legally. Legally. That is one in 10 American workers receiving less than a minimum wage legally because of legacies of slavery that we allow as a society to persist because of corporate control of our democracy that wants them to persist so they can pay people as little as possible. I mean, corporations, restaurant corporations benefit from the $2 wage, as do Instacart and DoorDash. But other private corporations like Whole Foods and Victoria's Secret benefit from incarcerated labor as well. All right. You're really depressing. You're like, <laughs> I, I'm going to head down to the nearest tavern and knock it out. What keeps you... you Make sure you tip well. I, because, oh, you, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> leave the wallet on the yeah, table. Exactly. Um, you are at the same time clearly deeply activated by this work. And you're also obviously well read on it. You know all the where the bodies are buried. And yet you seem pretty sunny. <laughs> what? Because so many people who listen are doing this kind of work. And I kind of worry for all of us that we're just going to you know, get back under the covers and stay there until it gets better, which yeah, it won't unless yeah. you do something about That's it. That's right. How do you keep your... Your hopes up. Um, I have so much hope, so much hope, because I got to say, maybe things were not as dire before November 2016, but we were also not as activated. I mean, the amount of people who've been out mobilizing, engaged in direct action, willing to think about organizing, I mean, the amount of philanthropy that has moved, shifted since November 2016 to be more open to the idea of organizing and direct action and mobilization it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And, you know, I do get incredibly frustrated, impatient, sometimes depressed when we win huge bills and it gets rolled back. Those things are depressing. On the other hand, I see that we've made incredible progress and you got to look at the long term. So this is a communications podcast. I want to share how we have inter what we call interrupted the narrative. So for 81 years, not just the restaurant association, but the labor movement, much of the labor movement and the left uh, conceded to the idea that tipped workers should be left out of the minimum wage because they get tips. And there was a notion that these are mostly white guys working in fancy fine dining restaurants, or perhaps a lot of people on our side of the aisle worked in restaurants in their youth and remember making a lot of money. And it took us first exposing who these workers are, telling their stories, saying these are not college students. These are mostly middle-aged women who are raising families on $2 plus tips. And it's the largest and fastest growing industry of women, by the way. And we've let it happen, you know, based on total misinformation, no malicious intention or anything, but total misinformation that somehow these workers were fine because they were who we were in college working in restaurants. Right. Yeah, I did it. Exactly. Fuck it up. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I, it's like a hazing ritual. Right. Everybody goes through it, but it's not true. Set, you know, over 70% of these workers are median, have a median age of 35. They mostly have kids. So we first started telling their stories, but the thing that really helped us interrupt the narrative was elevating the legacy of slavery and really elevating the sexual harassment and the severity of it and the stories, everything ranging from the way women are treated and talked to, to sexual assault on the workplace. I remember I was speaking at Netroots a few years ago and uh, about this, and a woman raised her hand and she said, I didn't even remember this until you just spoke. 
She was an organizer. I don't, I didn't remember this till I just spoke, but I remember as a young woman working in a restaurant, I was a server, you know, and as a server, the manager tells you dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing in order to make more money and tips. And what does that lead to? It makes you vulnerable then to be objectified by not just the customers, but coworkers and management. She said, I remember I was working my shift. The manager took me into the walk-in freezer, held me at knife point, raped me, and then I had to finish my shift directly afterward. And she said, I had blocked it out until you just spoke. And um, to me, elevating those stories is what ended up totally getting us to the point where even centrist Democrats in the House could vote for a $15 bill for everybody, tipped and non-tipped. And that included, by the way, disabled workers as well. I mean, it was historic. And everybody makes judgments about how successful you are, not successful, foundations want to see you achieving certain metrics. But in terms of communications and what our ultimate goal has to be in terms of communications, it, it first has to be interrupting the narrative, the narrative that the NRA drove forever, that it's totally okay for these workers to be paid $2 an hour because they get tips. Interrupting and saying, this is a legacy of slavery. This is a source of crazy levels of sexual assault. It's not okay. It's not working. It's not sustainable. Bringing not just workers' voices, but employers' voices who came forward and who've come forward, 800 of them, to say, we actually believe in this. It's better for the bottom line. So I think, to me, sometimes, you know, from a communications perspective, flipping the script, changing the narrative, using worker stories is as critical, as critical as anything else in ultimately winning the policy outcomes you're trying to win. What do you predict for the... I don't know, give us a like, whatever, good, medium, and bad scenario. No, what is, what do you think is a rational, reasonable thing to expect in the next five or 10 years? On this issue or yeah. generally? No, 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 let's, <laughs> let's, let's not make ourselves crazy <laughs> on this issue. I fully expect us to, as a nation, have no more subminimum wages in 10 years. I believe in that within all my heart. Because having seen the dramatic change, when we started this in 2013, fall of 2013, so you're talking six years, people said we were crazy to even think about getting tipped workers to 70% of the overall minimum wage. People generally didn't agree with us. And here we are, six years later, winning a bill in Congress. I mean, that is pretty big. And so if you can win one house in six years, I think we could win the other house (laughs) in the next 10 years and ultimately see an end to two legacies of slavery. This is interesting. I'm going to make a, a, I hope not a fake syllogism or something (laughs) like that, but that Angela Glover Blackwell talks about curb cuts, Mm -hmm. that when they instituted the Americans with Disabilities Act, which allowed for wheelchairs and other wheeled vehicles to get off of the curb so that people could move about, it had this extraordinary benefit for all sorts of people. That's right. People with, or parents, strollers. sorry, with strollers. Right. Uh, delivery p- That's people. That's right, yeah. That the benefits of equity pervade a society so much so that you couldn't have imagined life before the curb cuts. That's right. And... F- this feels like the kind of issue that has that kind of pervasive equity potential. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And we have done so much work to to lay that out, not just for workers, but for employers and for consumers. So first of all, in the worker population, when black women and women of color get an actual equitable, full, fair minimum wage, so does everybody else. Again, 
we have this subminimum wage because of slavery and because of gender inequity, but it's impacting everybody. So when we get one fair wage, it'll benefit everybody. That's one. That's among the workers. But then when you look at employers, we have done so much research, some of it funded by Ford and Rockefeller, to show that Actually, employers can cut their employee turnover in half by paying people one fair wage, by providing mobility and benefits, and that, in fact, turnover costs these employers in the millions of dollars that they're not quantifying right now. Everybody knows we have the highest rates of turnover of any industry. It's like 300%, three turns in one in worker in one year. Wow. And that, you know, costs the small restaurants about $12,000 a year in all these unaccounted costs. So huge savings, employee retention, employee morale, workers being better upsellers, able to talk about the food and the wine better because they're taken care of. So employers benefit. And then consumers. If you think about the, your favorite places to eat, in your mind, when you think about your favorite place to eat, what do you, does your server really rude and unhappy? <laughs> Are they very distracted and unable to focus on you? Do they look like they're not able to take care of themselves? No. Right. Your favorite experiences are being treated with grace and hospitality and warmth and by someone who's clearly taken care of, you know, or at least able to cover it up or able to take care of themselves. And so we know from our innate experience that treating people well results in a better dining experience, results in better food, results in better service. And so we know we would have a better consumer experience if we treated people well. Not to mention, by the way, the other consumer benefit would be that we wouldn't be subsidizing these multi-billion dollar corporations to the tune of about $16.9 billion with a B annually. That is how much we as taxpayers pay. So we're, we're doubly subsidizing restaurant companies. One, we pay for workers' wages through our tips. And two, we subsidize their survival through Medicaid and other forms of public assistance to the tune of $16.9 billion annually. So as consumers, we wouldn't have to subsidize corporations if we wanted to tip. That tip would be an extra or a bonus, not the wage itself. I'm just curious. It must be lonely at your level. <laughs> <laughs> who, who do you turn to when you have a question? Who are your mentors and advisors and trusted Well, some of them are the people you have interviewed, like John Powell and Angela Glover Blackwell. They are friends and mentors to me. She's on my list. She hasn't been on yet, but I know her son. (laughs) Yes, um, they're amazing. Other folks like them. And I have to say my partner. I mean, uh, I have, I am so very, very, very fortunate to have Zachary Norris as my partner, director of the L. Baker Center, author of a recent book. Um, you can plug the book. Oh, yes. You should pick up Zach's book, Zachary Norris's book. It's uh, We Keep Us Safe, really presenting us with an alternative view of public safety in this country. As you may know, L. Baker Center works to end mass incarceration in this country. But I feel like I'm able to get so much wisdom from Zach. We're in this fight together. And we've been engaged in a fight together to save our kids' public schools. <laughs> and for, for which you have earned a uh, trip yes. to the... The, uh, the surgeon. To the surgeon. <laughs> yes. I, um, we've been fighting to keep our kids' public schools open to stop charter school takeovers in Oakland. And that resulted in the school board having the school police beat us up at a school board meeting where we were protesting school closures. 
and uh, me having to have knee surgery because the police tore my ligaments and bone in my knee. But that just fuels our fire. <laughs> yes. Every time I wince, I take the power. Well, now there's an enormous lawsuit against the school district. It got us a lot more attention. Um, you know, I teach social movements at, at UC Berkeley. And one of the things we talk about in the class is that in a true long-lasting uh, social movement, there's, there's what we call cycles of contention. In other words, the people push, and if the... If the elites push back in an over-brutalized way, it grows the movement. And then more people push and there's a counter push. So the over-brutalized response of the elites actually fuels the movement. And we're seeing that now in Hong Kong and other parts of the yep. world. But in our case, you know, we were protesting with 50 or 60 people and they beat us up. In the next boarding meeting, we had two or 300 people. I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it is the stuff of movements that's another thing I want to plug. Plug movements. Um, well, I teach this social movements class, and I have to admit, before I started teaching it maybe seven or eight years ago, I myself used the term social movement or movement very broadly, loosely. I would call our work a movement of restaurant workers. That's understandable. Everybody does that. But getting from the literature a real definition of social movements and organizing helps us create aspirations for something bigger, better, more transformational. Because we have seen moments in history like the civil rights movement where a movement is widespread enough and long-lasting enough that you see these kinds of cycles of contention, that you see transformative change in a way that you can't get with smaller numbers of people. And the, the lesson is simply the more people engaged in organizing and movement building across a very broad swath of society, the more transformational change you can achieve. And the other lesson is that no one institution ever could ever be a movement. And actually, not even a set of institutions could be a movement. If you really look at social movements, it requires multiple institutions and millions of people who are not affiliated with any institution who get involved through their church or however. And that's what it would take to take down corporate control of our democracy. Well, if anyone can do it, I suspect <laughs> you're going to be at the head of that group. No, no, no. Well, you'll be with, you'll be with the be leaders. with the people, yes. You'll be <laughs> holding hands with the leaders. Sarajaya Raman, thank you so much thank for you. what you do and thank for you. such a great conversation. Yeah. What a delight. Thank you. And we're back. So I think we've finally arrived. It's time. So, so we can stop? No, we we're just to, getting started. We arrived? We're just getting started. We're just all because, ashore that's going ashore. Look, here's here's the first takeaway. You're you're not working hard enough and neither am I. Because Sarah's oh setting the bar. She's telling us what needs to be done. <laughs> I don't know, man. These people are so, they so achieve. They're isn't so achievey. Isn't it impressive? And um, you know, I, I'm actually really appreciate you starting both with her story, but then also the conversation about how story informs always when she's presenting and, and engaging with people. Um, and is Saru a communicator? <laughs> she, I think she communicates in her sleep. <clears throat> Clearly. Sorry. Do we need to start over that? No, no. Okay. But yet. Okay. She clearly communicates in her sleep, but yet 
I would argue that she comes at the work as activist, as academic, as um, instigator, as organizer, as leader. But communications is in the fabric and the yes. fiber of everything that she does. Is yeah. that fair? Oh, that's totally fair. And I've always said, I've said this a million times, which is that you can't separate communications from strategy if you wanted to. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. So when, when people, you work at a, in a communication shop at a foundation or a nonprofit and somebody has some report and they drop it on your desk when it's done and say, Oh, can you put this out? I was like, well, what's the point? Right. If you don't, if, if the communications isn't built into the work, then why are you doing it? And I don't think Saru needs to sit down and articulate that theory of change. It's just in her and you can hear it. It's ingrained. Because everything she does is based on understanding the narrative about how we got to this miserable place, how the role that uh, slavery has played, the role, the effect that it has had on people of color, on women, and why that matters and why we need to do something about it and how doing something about it benefits everybody yeah that's that's narrative that's story that's an understanding about how people communicate about what moves them it's not a bunch of she you know she uses statistics but she doesn't her story is not statistics that's right that's right and it's deeply engaging and you can find your place in it you know it seems like too and you know, we've talked recently about bridging and just the blinders of privilege too, you know, and how that's such an important, um, just thread that's emerging in our field. And here we are at the heart of it, right? The shadow economy you guys talk about, this is one in 10 workers in the United States. This is the fasting growing. It's the number two employer total. Um, and then, and then the legacy of this carve out from an employment law that attracts directly back to slavery, you know? And yeah. This is, you know, this is not common knowledge. This is not, you know, this is not a That's regular right. conversation around the dinner table. So how did you meet Saru? How did you encounter this work? Yeah, I saw her at at, at Irvine. Oh, she came man. in and gave a talk to, I don't know, 20 or 30 people at, at the Irvine Foundation about four years ago, I think. Huh. And uh, I mean, Restaurant Opportunities United was already going. It mm-hmm. was a, it was a thing. Mm-hmm. And she was, uh, I mean, she's been a, a powerful force in this work for quite some time but she, and she was willing to come in and talk to 15 or 20 people because as you can tell <laughs> she has a lot of energy yeah. and she will talk to anyone even us yeah even yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank and you by the way thank you so much she was so impressive and yeah. and because her her communications skills are so obvious and mm. so powerful i thought yeah. from the very beginning oh, we got to get her on this yeah. show because i know she's going to be an amazing guest and she really is was. well and and how she pieced together this inequality thread and it's many pieces it's economic inequality it's racial inequality it's gender inequality but then also the role of corporations, that this is more upside down today, this in econ, this economic inequality than it was during the Gilded Age. And then <laughs> you get into the other NRA, the other the <laughs> National, National Restaurant, Restaurant Association, Association, the other NRA. Woo! So, you know, it's funny. I was thinking, like, would we ever invite an evil, evil lobby? A, you know, a termed evil lobby. Would we, we ever invite somebody from that community into our, in, in, onto our podcast to talk with them? I'm not uh, sure we would. If they're, if they're, when they're announcing that they're going to uh, pay one fair wage, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. So 
Saru, the reason I actually say legitimately we've arrived is Saru is very clear. Corporations have driven inequality. And she's got a very, I thought, clear and crisp critique, alliteration not intended, of that role, that powerful role in all of this. And and I think that she did an extraordinary job of connecting the dots between both where this comes from, the legacy, but then the through line to how this affects so many people, who those people are, their role in our society. That The piece about the sexual harassment and the violence that people are exposed to when you're relying on tips, you know, for your, for your wage. But what is your response or what are your thoughts about that through line to corporate, um, just, just the backdrop of corporations in this whole conversation? And where would you force rank this in terms of issues we should be thinking about? This is very unfair to be asking Good you this. Good Lord. Yeah, very unfair. No idea. What if it's number one? What if it's the single greatest issue we need to address? Okay, here's here's the thing. Uh, uh, needless to say, here we uh, go. We're throwing down. Here oh we go. God, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know when this is coming out. But it's going to be sometime <laughs> in the middle of the Democratic uh, primary. Mm. And uh, also, needless to say, there's one person who has has corporations <laughs> are the problem. Right. Um, yeah. I, 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 the one thing that I would say is that. Calling something corporations with a big C uh, this, as this nameless, faceless, e- evil thing is probably not how I think about it, mm. which is the corporations are made up of people who mm-hmm. are running these institutions. Some of them are good. Some of them are really, really not good. Understanding where the value is in helping to bring about a change is is really important. Saru's ability to name the the thing that we can relate to, which is that this sub, this like ridiculous $2 and 13 cents an hour thing is something that makes it easy to sexually harass women, which is that we can understand. Cause sometimes people will say, Oh, they make two bucks an hour, but they make all these tips. And so therefore it's okay. It becomes very abstract. And in fact, this is college students working at the golf course. Right. Kind of, you know, it's like it, it evokes that notion yeah. or something. And we like all that. did it. We all waited tables. Right. Yeah, many, yeah. many of us did. Yeah. It, that that's the fact that she has made it real yeah. and made it present and made it relatable is what makes her message powerful. Yeah. And when we talk about corporations and there are trillions of them, and there are, it, it it makes it easier to dismiss the argument as something that is either it's too big or it's not. Mm-hmm. specific or personal enough. I, I certainly see where there are specific corporations that, that we, they have to change and mm-hmm. we have to f- figure out the best way to make people understand why and how and who is actually responsible and what they need to be able to do. Yeah. So that's that's my answer to that. It's, it's kind of a non-answer answer, but I think that we, to the extent that you can make anything specific and real and understandable and tangible, that's how you begin to move things. Yeah, well, and it's in uh, speaking directly to Sarah's experience, and then I'll go to Crazy Town for a moment on the corporate thread for a second. Right. But, um, but, um, you know, Saru relating her experiences to uh, compiling these stories from did she say 10,000 workers? Yeah, like is that the scale that? One of the things I often think when we hear people referring to this kind of work there in the field, they're talking, we're working with so many people. Saru has compiled probably the world's greatest focus group of public interest laboratory, you know, like, like just library of data that's ever been assembled, you know, about this, about this consideration. And so the, I was just thinking about that in terms of this is linking and framing 
in terms of pervasive and persuasive communications for sure. But there's also, um, there's also a rigor that's coming from that, that I think is pointing to something that's really important, you know, and, 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 and the way that she's able to draw, you know, I, I loved how she stacked up when we address these issues, who do we work? Who do we help? And we help everybody, right? right? We help the worker, we help the business owner and we help the consumer. This is something that flows through and touches every part of our economy in a, in a beneficial way. And yet we have this incredible pushback because of all these other considerations, mostly around costs, by the way, that are not named or given someplace else. I, I, just her ability to take all this information in and then draw the, those connected dots. And you guys had that entire conversation in less than 30 minutes was extraordinary to me to listen to. Also, she makes the, the almost the reverse point is that by discriminating against people of color and women, you're discriminating against everybody. Oh, by the way. Yes. And, and, yes. and that's not to say that, that if you didn't, then that would be okay. Right. But it, it's, it helps you understand about how inequity affects all of us yes. in, in really pernicious ways yeah. and how equity benefits all of us in really wonderful ways. Yeah. And uh, as a society, we, we haven't quite fully figured that out yet, which is crazy, but it's true. And I do see how these changes, and as she mentioned, in California, the rate right. of sexual harassment against, yeah. against uh, female wait staff is fifty is is half of that right. elsewhere because there's a minimum wage, like a, a decent minimum wage yeah. that that they receive in California. So your the research bears it out, yeah. but also kind of common sense and your sense about who who we ought to be as a society. Yeah, it, it is response to that. Well, and I loved how totally, and I and I loved how um, she was very clear. She was like, if you want to address inequity you must address the protagonist. Yeah. And that to me is where it gets so interesting and where this can actually push us a little bit because, um, and you guys, <laughs> and here's Eric Brown being so funny. Mistakes were made. Yeah. You know, like let's, uh, let's, the old passive voice. let's eliminate the passive voice. And she's, she's putting on the table this, and she, she was so clear about it. She was like, people don't wake up poor versus rich. You know, this is the consequence of, of an agenda. So this, this is the crazy town thought I'd, oh, put, yeah, I'd here put we forward. Go. So, and we've talked about it on this podcast, we're like, man, we got to get ready. AI is coming robotics. Like what's going to, what is it going to mean for social change when these, when these kind of automated mechanisms are influencing us so much. And I've kind of long thought that a corporate capitalist model, we're already living within an AI construct because in our society, corporations have standing as people. So the people you identify as working in corporations are actually serving an entity that's not a person. And when you actually look at how a lot of these mechanisms are sorting out, and you know, I, my depth of field work is in climate issues. And I don't think that there's anybody who wakes up in the morning and says, I want to bake the planet and make it completely inhospitable within my lifetime. I genuinely don't believe that. I don't even think you're probably right. I don't even think people that I would probably would have very little to align with that are, you know, sitting behind massive oil fifesums necessarily get up in the morning and think that, you know, even though I don't maybe share other values of that with those people, but this way that we get put into service for systems that are beyond our control that we don't name that actually generate these horrible outcomes while we think we are doing good work. Um, I think we're living maybe in the expression of that artificial intelligence, you know, and, and, and you know, which again is like what happens when the rules get set up in a certain way. So what I appreciate, and that may be right or wrong, and that be that may be crazy town, or somebody who's far smarter than me could actually probably, you know, parse that and make that better. 
But when when um, Sara puts forward this notion that this is not just an artifact of stuff happening, but that there's a real protagonist here, there's a real story right. here, and there are people on both sides. It, it and we've talked before about philanthropy. It's willing to do the very hard way. It's it's willing to do the impossible, but doesn't like to do the hard or something like that. Like I couldn't imagine going into a foundation and saying, "Hey, we're going to change the corporate narrative in America." Maybe people feel like they're working on that, you know. Mm-hmm. But but the but reestablishing a place for people in the narrative as opposed to this corporate structure, that to me feels like the fundamental shift that's in play in our time. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, Anat Shankar Osorio has talked about n- naming who is actually responsible, the actual people who are responsible for bad things. Yeah, interesting. And I think that's, this is of a piece of that thinking about how you, uh, how you shape a narrative that actually points towards how do you solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Corporations are bad doesn't get you there. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I also believe that there are heads of corporations who wake up in the morning and say, I actually don't give a rip about whether we're baking the planet or not because I'm going to be dead and my kids will be rich enough to build a wall or to buy the water or to do whatever they need to do in order to survive this. I mean, I really do think that there's some just like bad, bad actors out there Mm -hmm. who don't care. Mm -hmm. And then there's probably the vast bunch in the middle who say, oh, you know, I don't have the energy. I'm not the person. I'm a cog in the wheel of the thing. And it's not my responsibility or it's not my fault or whatever. And they just kind of eat. uh, they, They just kind of get by. Yeah. And then there are a lot of folks who really want to make a difference and don't feel like they have the agency or the platform or the opportunity. And I think that's where we need to find ways to to move that forward. And needless to say, Saru is a really good example of somebody who has taken on this massive yes. industry and is making a difference. And if you are working in some field, it doesn't have to be anything near what she's doing but look at the the analogs well what is the role that i can play that she's done how do i figure out how to shape a narrative in such a way that people do understand that there are people who are responsible for the things that are happening and here's what we all need to do in order to turn that around yeah that's organizing at its finest it's narrative shift in in kind of near perfection yeah and it's we all can just take huge lessons from that. Ooh, so I tied all this back. There you go. To the conversation. There you go. Well, <laughs> it, it, that's right. This is why we've finally right. Like we're, we're covering all this ground and I'd say- We're and, finally and learning something. We are. And she's demonstrating yeah. how you do it so well and so efficiently. I learned so much in that discussion just in minutes. Um, so one last thing about what you said, and then there's two more things I want to get to about the conversation. But well, hurry um, up. I know. We got to go. Sorry. But come on, there's a lot in here. No, so, I know. So, um, Sorry. I, well, the thing I'm afraid about most is that when we go back to that corporate critique and what's happening and who we think the real people that can move the needle are, they're neither good nor bad. They're just waking up every morning knowing they're 90 days away from losing their job if they don't deliver a quarter's worth of benefit, and they can't see past that. Yeah. And and that's that's the unfortunate, you know, kind of deep, the, 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 that's why the, the nose is headed down on this so badly. But so you asked her... Um, <laughs> You said clearly she's deeply activated, but she's pretty sunny. Yeah. You know? <laughs> great laugh. And she claimed that she had so much hope. Do you buy it? Yes. And why? Uh, because I think she has confidence in the righteousness of the cause. Yeah. And the many, many people she's being seeing mobilized to do the work. Yes. I loved hearing about that. The many, many people that are out there. And she thinks that within 10 years, there's going to be more, no more sub minimum wages in the country. What do you think? 
that's that seems possible. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? It seems, uh, I, needless to say, a lot of these things have to do with politics, but I also think that a lot of it has to do with commerce. Yeah. And if you can activate, you, you know, if you can activate the commerce side, whether it's through helping people understand, you know, consumers under, understand how their money gets spent, I think you can actually get some stuff done. We've yeah. seen it. We've seen it through history that that consumers actually do have some agency and they can shape markets in certain ways. Yeah. And if you combine that with this shifting narrative that the subminimum wage is uh, kind of goes hand in hand with sexual abuse of people who work in restaurants and it has this connection with slavery, I think that that all of a sudden starts to get people's attention. Yeah. And, you know, she gave us the notion of interrupting the narrative. Love that, you know, interrupting and bringing these issues forward. So finally, we heard some uh, great names again, the people she turns to, John Powell. Yep. Thank you, John. Um, What are you doing, Eric? Angela Glover Blackwell. Why hasn't Angela been on our podcast yet? You know, we talked about this a long time ago. Come on. She's very busy. I can't wait. And then, um, you know, Zachary Norris, uh, the director of the L. Baker Center, her partner, and just want to make a plug for We Keep Us Safe, you know, the, the book that Zachary's written. So... Man, so much here. What a journey. And again, I just can't wait. I wonder if Sarah would come back like in a year, you know, because clearly she's been, you know, she, give her another thing to do. She's hey, got a lot of free talk time. talk to us once. <laughs> Maybe she'll talk to us twice. That's right. Hey, I want to make one more pitch. Mm. Actually, that the deadline for folks to submit a nomination for the Communications Network, Communication Network's Clarence B. Jones Impact Award is Tuesday April 21st. Ah. So if you know somebody, uh, a communications campaign, whether it's big or small, that made a difference, go ahead and submit a nomination at www.jonesaward.org. Desmond Mead's speech at the Comnet Conference accepting the Clarence B. Jones Award was one of the highlights of my year last year. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, if you know that this year is Desmond Mead, Please submit their nomination because it's the kind of thing that we all learn from. That's right. Can't wait. It makes us all so much better. Um, well, Saru J. Raman, what a treat. Thank you for joining us on Let's Hear It. I hope we uh, can follow your work as it progresses, and I hope we can come have you back because there's, come on, there's a lot in here we need to talk about. So, Eric, thank you for doing that. That was awesome. That was fun. Let's hear it. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show, and that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it.